Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors, manufacturing in upstate New York, Golden Acrylics, Williamsburg Oils, and more recently, Core Watercolors, an employee-owned company committed to producing the highest quality materials while maintaining a culture of stewardship and community involvement. I've been using Golden for over 20 years, and I swear by it. For more information about Golden Artist Colors, visit them online at goldenpaints.com. Jules de Ballancourt is an artist based out of Brooklyn. He's had solo museum exhibitions at Kassler Kunstwerden in Germany, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth in Texas, the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts in Canada, and the Mori Art Museum in Tokyo. He's been in select group exhibitions at institutions including the Collezione Marmati, the Whitney Museum of American Art, MoMA PS1, the Brooklyn Museum, Mass Mocha, Macro Museum of Contemporary Art in Rome, the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Palais de Tokyo in Paris, and the Shanghai Museum. Other solo exhibitions include There Are More Eyes Than Leaves on the Trees at Gallery Thaddeus Ropak in Paris, One Island Many People in Gallery Beaubergarden in Copenhagen, Denmark. They cast long shadows at Victoria Miro in London. We Come Together at Night at Gallery Thaddeus Ropak in Salzburg, Austria. Stumbling Pioneers at Victoria Miro in London. Ecstatic Contact at Salon 94 in New York. And Premonitions at Deitch Projects in New York. Jules has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, Vanity Fair, the Guardian, Telegraph, and Le Monde, among other major publications. He's currently represented by Victoria Miro in London, Thaddeus Ropak in Paris, and Beau Beauregard in Denmark. He is currently working for an upcoming show at CAC Malaga that will feature paintings from the past 10 years, along with new work. It will open in March 2021. I spoke to Jules about his days moving about growing up, surfing, painting, music, and much more. Here's our conversation. But then it becomes more invasive and your whole life is like riddled by this object that won't leave you. <laughs> and you're never off, you know, you're never offline. Yeah, I mean, it's just been a challenge for me because now it's all about how we live remotely or online because now there's no more real social direct engagement. So now it's all about your virtual platform. And me being like an older generation, I'm not so much like virtual social media guy. You know, it took me a long time to get on Facebook, took me a long time to get on Instagram. But now that's like without one of those platforms, you barely exist in some weird way, you know? So it's yeah, like, totally. it's a new challenge. So like, and all of a sudden like galleries were asking me like, you know, do the video of you in your studio. Let's hear about your COVID experience. All of a sudden you sort of have to become like this reality TV show, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. to, like share your personal life to the world. And it's like, I don't, you know, I'm still a painter, not necessarily like, uh, you know, you know, just, Share, oversharing you know i just it's not in my it's not in my instincts i guess yeah yeah i think you know it for some people i'm sure who 
I mean, I feel lucky because I use the computer in a lot of my work and I'm kind of, and I've done like audio recording stuff in my music life, you know? Well, and, well that's, that's funny because that's one of the first things I remember when I first moved to Brooklyn, when I first moved to New York in 2000, I was an art handler, as you remember, yeah. working for Fred Warden Trucking. And I remember going to your studio, when, which was on Havemeyer, right by Atlas Cafe. In yeah, right across the street, yeah. And I remember you, you struck me as one of the first guys who was kind of like, you were really using the computer, right? As the computer was starting to become a thing. Like it seemed like you had a good grip on like Photoshop and tech and graphic. And then you were also one of the first guys kind of like using tape. I remember, I remember picking up art from you and you had like your turntables and your keyboard and you were kind of like digital music guy. And then you were also like kind of making these digital paintings when it was kind of like, a new thing, the hard edge kind of like taped painting. And I remember when I just got to New York, it was kind of like inspiring to see all these. And you were like one of the young guys like making it. I remember it was like you were like, we were taking your paintings to Protech a lot, Max Protech. Yeah. Remember those and days. It, it was just an interesting moment in like a lot of people like doing sort of like, yeah, using the computer and also like this sort of Photoshop graphic element. And um, anyways, I don't know what yeah, my tirade well, was. Oh, no, no. well, that, my point is that's just how I remember. That's the first time I met you. I remember going up that, that little, that, that studio space there. Were you living there too? Oh, yeah. That wasn't like a real studio space. It's funny because yeah. when I first moved to Williamsburg, I lived in the Gretsch building, you know, and I had a huge yeah. space. Yeah. And then they kicked everyone out of there. Yeah. And then I found a place with my wife with, you know, at that point we were dating, but you know, we found a place, that place over on grand street, it was tiny and yeah, we in Yeah. And we lived there and I had just had a little area where I worked. I've never had a huge studio. So, um, yeah. even when I lived in the Gretsch building, I painted in my bedroom, there was a huge yeah. giant space, but I don't know. I never had a giant studio. So yeah, I lived and worked there and, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't that big. It wasn't yeah. storage or anything. And, you know, I never, I never uh, felt comfortable in a giant space for some reason. But that back was, then, back then the internet and like, you know, computers were like the wild west, you know, like I was doing some of that, like playing with the computer and Photoshop. And I didn't know what I was doing. Like I taught myself everything as I went along and it was never like digital art back then. It was just like, you could mess around with the computer a bit, just like with music. Like I played in an analog band, but we would mess around with digital stuff and I had no idea yeah. what I was doing. But it wasn't yeah. like, you know, it was back then it was kind of, you just, you could mess around with stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, I never had the sense of, I, you know, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I still don't even know Photoshop. So I'm still like one of those last like dinosaur relics of painters that's still in the, in the pre, you know, in the analog days. I never really fully... But I admire people. I just don't have the patience for it. I just don't. I don't. But I'm really like even, you know, even you helping me set up Zoom was like holding my hand for, you know, first grade. And it's just you're, listen, so just, you're, you're better off. Of, it's not my sensibility, but but I admire people that, you know, I wish I had more of those tech skills. It, it but, comes um, with a price, I think. It, it's for, It's great for some things and then it's a time suck for other things, you know. For me, the photoshopping kind of just that's kind of how I build up my painting paintings. I'm actually doing my filters kind of like on the paintings as far as layers, you know, or kind yeah. of like I'll do one wash and then I'll do another wash on top of it and then it changes the base color. So I'm kind of like figuring it out. I'm 
I'm sort of collaging and cutting and pasting. That's how I'm kind of building up the paint. So I'm like literally like, it's a much more tedious process, but that's kind of how I build up my paintings is kind of layering. Yeah, but it's funny because like looking at your work, I've always thought, oh, there's such a freedom there. You know what I mean? Because I feel like in the core, uh, and this may be reading in completely incorrectly into the conceptual side of your work or like what it's about, I feel like the core kind of um, anxiety about spaces and people and the world. And I feel like there's some themes there that definitely are a big part of my work. You know what I mean? But I feel like in your work, I've always looked at it and thought there's such a freedom to express that kind of that texture, that layering, that um, there's a looseness there about the way that space and perspective is put in and that that heightens the sort of um I don't want to say the the drama or it heightens the the feeling of those paintings mm. and I think it's such a power of it and I have such a a weird like I have to it's got to be so close to real or, or realism in a way not reality but you know like Japanese prints I love those because they're so straightforward I love straightforward in that sense to where I'm not tweaking it too much but there's a freedom in that tweaking things that I think is beautiful and I, sometimes I I really wish I had that. Well, I think, I mean, I think maybe the big difference between your work and my work is I think yours more, yours is more photography based, maybe. Yeah, totally. They're referencing photographies and mine are just kind of made up. So I think that's what maybe differentiates. Like I have kind of my own weird way of building up a painting or a picture. So I think that's, that's probably the big difference, I think. Yeah, that's huge. And, and it's, and that's, I think there's a freedom in that. You know what I mean? You can just draw things. And it's harder in a way, too, for you because you've got to make everything up. Whereas I'm leaning on, you know, images that I take or images that I find as a sort of framework to it, you know? Me, it's just kind of about just trusting myself. Like, I know, I mean, you know what, it, you know, a building is basically just a big cube, you know? I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, if you really allow yourself, you can draw a building without getting every you know detail correct but you would i mean you i'm sure i'm sure for me it'd be an interesting challenge to do work that was just like based off of photos and maybe for you to try to do a painting that's like purely just from visual memory and just going you know i don't know who knows well you know what's funny nowadays is a lot of the images that i do like i'm working on a music video right now it's like all animation but it's based on collages that i've done and a lot of those are imagined but they yeah. just look like I've been doing it so long that the stuff that I invent kind of looks like the stuff that I've done they from look, They look looser though. Yeah. They look looser and more playful, no? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, it's, um, yeah. I, for some reason, I just thought of film. What are some films, filmmakers that inspire you? Like what kind of film? Oh, um, I don't. Oh, it's a wide. It's a it's a wide range. <laughs> Are there any like movies a, that you've seen and you thought to yourself like, "Oh, that feels like," or "I want my paintings to feel that," or that's that resonates with like my sort of language and working visually. Um, you know, it's funny because I was just yeah, I was just in France for my show, and this woman was interviewing me, and she asked me that same question, and I mentioned the movies, and it was like so far from my paintings that she was kind of looked at me like, "Oh, really?" Like, 
I was thinking of like some of these like French neorealist filmmakers from like the '90s, early 2000s, like mm-hmm. um, like Casper Noé, Bruno Dumont, the guy who did um, Irreversible, and um, yeah, I also like you know Lars von Trier's like these really kind of dark neorealist sort of like um, matter of fact filmmakers that are sort of nothing that really directly relates to my work. Well, visually maybe, but what about the feeling of them? Yeah, maybe a certain yeah, maybe a certain global or cultural anxiety or some of some sort, but I don't yeah. It's tough, right? Yeah. <laughs> I you know, one um, one of, one of, of course, my fi- of course, I love some of Robert Altman's movies. You know, like, oh yeah, um, the player shortcuts. I love shortcuts. some of these. I love some of these LA-based movies that I grew up in, and I feel like those movies, like Shortcuts, I feel like inspired a lot of movies in the sense of like all these competing narratives happening all at once, and then at the, at the very end of the movie, they all kind of converge. Yeah. Or the it player. blew me away the first time I saw that movie. Yeah, Tom Waits was just Tom Waits himself is such a force, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then it, you know Jarmusch and all those movies and how that there's a lot of great cinema out there. Um, but Jacques Tati is such a huge influence on me. Like Playtime is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I think it, because it it just feels like a moving painting, you know, of uh, yeah. Yeah. people moving through these spaces, and it's it's just so bizarre and and great visually i don't think it looks like my work but it's it's been a real big influence on me and koyana scotsy which terrified me as a young person when i saw, <laughs> saw that movie. i think it's apropos for our global society today still still holds up yeah so you grew, but you grew up in uh in california you were all over the place right i I was yeah I was born in I was born in France and then and then my parents divorced when I was young and then my mom was kind of like a, a little bit of a wild hippie in the 70s and we lived in Ibiza for a year when I was like 4 years old and and then we lived in um and then my mom went back to live with her mother in in Switzerland so we lived in Switzerland for a year and then I moved to California finally like in the early in the late 70s when I was just you know like a little a little kid yeah and then so, but then my family was still in Europe. So there was a lot of like this kind of like back and forth between California and Paris. I would spend, you know, the summers in France and go back to California. And yeah, so growing up in the 80s in Southern California is, is like, you know, the first couple of years is like an awkward little French kid, you know, back when French kids looked like French kids and American kids <laughs> like American kids, you know, right, right. now it's just like everyone has the same Converse and Vans. And, right. You know. But back in the day, it was like I came from France and I was like wearing my little French sold French crepe sold little like sandals and like these weird, you know, with these weird shorts and corduroy like these long knee-high corduroy shorts meanwhile everyone was wearing like the little like op shorts and half tops and you know tube socks and vans like you know early 80s california southern california Dogtown. yeah it was <laughs> that's what yeah, i picture I, I grew up in i grew up in that area you know i grew up near santa monica venice so it was just the polar opposite of like a little parisian boy experience and it was great. I mean, it was also not always easy because we were moving a lot and going like my mom was just trying to find her roots and we were moving a lot. And then we finally sort of settled 
in Southern California. And then we, but we would like travel down to Mexico for like two or three months. Like my mom was, she was, you know, she was kind of like a wild bohemian hippie. So I had to like keep up and travel the world with her. And, and, um, but yeah, growing up in SoCal and, you know, in the eighties, it was, yeah, I'm it, sure it, it was interesting, but it was also hard sometimes like assimilating. I remember the first year I got to the new school in America, I was from France and it was at the time of like Rambo and Reagan. And they were like, France, you commie, you know, it was like, they treated me like a commie. <laughs> Kids were telling me that America won the Vietnam war and that France, I was a commie. I mean, so there was, you know, there was some awkwardness of already just being like a little like 10 year old and then like you're French and then it's, you know, just ignorance of people. So it was interesting experience. Did you feel like you had to dive into Americana like full force and try to hide it? Or did you embrace it and kind of just keep quiet oh, or like? My, my mom says that the very first thing I said when we got to LAX and we landed from France is, mommy, mommy, where's the cowboys and Indians? It was like this, <laughs> it was like this huge deception. Like I, I, I still like had this fantasy of, you know, of this cowboys and Indians kind of scenario. But, right. um, yeah, I think I think as a kid you just want to fit, you know, you no one every kid at that age you just kind of want to fit in. You don't want you want to, you sort of want to you don't want to draw too much attention. And my mom was kind of like the the hot French mom, you know, and she'd come pick me up in, in, at school and I was kind of like embarrassed cuz she looked different. Really she was just cooler than most moms, but back then it was like you just wanted your mom to look like every other suburban mom you know <laughs> yeah 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 cool doesn't matter when you're a kid you just want them no, to be invisible and then you realize like oh, of course you were the cool parents like everyone loved my all my all my high school kids loved my friends they all loved my mom because she was like the cool mom you know yeah but but when you're younger it was like i remember in high school we my mom met henry miller back in her days and he she had a paint she has a painting that he did of her where Whoa. she's like where she's half naked you know and it's kind of have you ever seen henry miller's watercolors <laughs> no They're i haven't like naive chagall-esque watercolors you know not i think his writing is better than his painting but yeah but um he wrote a book saying he wrote a book called if you, um paint as you like and you will die happy so it's more like the philosophy of henry miller but anyway she used to have this painting of his i mean she still does uh in our house and, I, and I'd have parties and I would like take it down because it was kind of like people would be like you know most 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 kids in their in their living room have like that classic 80s you know family portrait with like the the Sears portrait yeah yeah the Sears portrait and my mom here's this like kind of gnarly portrait of my mom with this like this big tree is a bush and it's just like it's kind of an intense painting but I love it now now it's like you know I know I don't know if you remember my mom's house burned down like two years ago yeah during during the LA fires and luckily, you know, luckily in the end, the only thing that was saved is like art and photos. So luckily that painting made it past the, um, but that painting now is a treasure, even though in high school. It was know, the bane of your existence. Yeah. It was just like, I'll <laughs> oh, take that down. We're having a party. I don't want anyone to see that, you know, you know, well, just, I'm I'm holding on for like that that later down the road, cool factor to see back in with my kid, you know, like maybe one day. <laughs> He'll be like, oh yeah, that's kind of yeah, cool. The stuff you realize you're the cool dad, yeah. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I guess that's what we all hope, you know. Um, but yeah, that must have been. I mean, not to delve too far into it, but that must have been a tough, 
upbringing. I mean, I don't know, kids who like, you know, have a single parent and are traveling around or like, you know, kind of like taken from here to there because their parents, you know, are just moving all over the place. I imagine that ingrains within you this a kind of feeling that you never can really settle into a place. Yeah. Do you have that feel? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, my first two years, my first two years doing one school, I mean, two years in a row was, was fourth and fifth grade. Like basically first grade, second grade, third grade, every year was a different school in a different country, literally. Yeah. So it was, yeah, there was, it was a little bit of like unsettling derootedness, but at the same time, I got exposed to a lot of great things. Like the same time I have memories of like being a child and going on like a two month camping trip in, in Mexico with my, my mother and VW buses or living in, in, in um, just in different places, being exposed to lots of cool, great people. But, but yeah, it was definitely a little unsettling, a little um, doesn't give you a sense of security, I guess you could say. Yeah, or just, uh, I would imagine, well, it might be freeing in a way too, but just not this deep-rooted child, like a a childhood where you feel like you were wired in a place that, like I grew up in Pittsburgh and I was in Pittsburgh until I went to college. And I just feel like that kind of like, you know, blue collar, you know, that that feel of that place is just in me, you know? And I didn't even... I feel like travel teaches you so much and I didn't get to travel until I was in college, you know, and not really like travel proper until I started having shows in different countries. So it was, uh, you know, the idea of traveling around and not only in areas of like here to there, but different countries must've been a real like widening experience for your mind, you know? Yeah, and I think in some some ways it's reflected in my work. I think now that it's not really about a specific place. It's sort of about this like itinerant displacement. It's like it's all these different, some of it's like the jungle, some of it's the city. It's not specific to one specific local spot. It's more global. It's like it could, you could, you could link it to Hawaii, Argentina, or India. It doesn't have to be specific it's more global ideas of humanity now and less like of a specific place and i think maybe part of it is feels like i lived in so many different places as well yeah like after high school then i after high school i moved to you know after high school i didn't really know what i wanted to do because in high school surfing was like my obsession and then and then all of a sudden it's and then all of a sudden it's after high school and i'm don't really have a real focus. I mean, I was always doing art and drawing, but I didn't really know. So I went to Santa Barbara City College, which was basically an extended, you know, party vacation. <laughs> and um, and then eventually, you know, being in City College, I just introduced to all these art classes because my high school was just kind of a mediocre public high school with very limited art. There was no real art classes besides like every high school that has the dumb, you know, ceramic class where everyone's making bongs but aside from that aside from that there was no real art encouragement in high school so for me it was just really surfing was my obsession but I wasn't going to become a professional surfer so going to city college I was all all of a sudden able to get into these art classes I was doing ceramics I was doing painting I was and and I just flourished in that setting it was just clear to me right away that this was what I was going to do and it's what I was good and it's what I was instant you know um, instantly 
good at and compared to other class, you know, and compared to other stuff. I was a perfectly fine student in high school, nothing great, nothing bad, but art is really where I was, you know, that was like, I remember in high school we would do book reports and the only thing I would really get merit for, and they'd be like, Oh, well look at Jules's cover of the book report. You know? Oh, right. The visual he, side. He did an illustration <laughs> for To Kill a Mockingbird. You know? the, the actual report was, so yeah, Santa Barbara getting into art there and, getting into ceramics and then I had my first little I set up sort of my own little business making ceramics and selling ceramic drums I was making ceramic drums so I was in this sort of neo hippie Santa Barbara movement of fish and the dead and all this this moment of like early 90s but it was also like the, it, the end of fishbone and chili peppers it was so there's an interesting moment of of this kind of skate surf punk Thing. And then there was also this sort of like hippie thing. But so for, uh, for a while I was making these ceramic drums and I would go sell them on the, on the Venice beach boardwalk. And then I would go to dead shows and I would sell them in the parking lot. So that was my early, like early twenties. I don't, I, I was always set on never getting a real job. And I really never really did until I got to New York city. And then that was art handling. That was my closest thing to, but I was in California. I was able to sort of navigate without getting a real job and and already supporting myself with my art early on i was lucky i mean i was fortunate what are ceramic drums like it's like a it's like a it's like a doombeck it's like a traditional moroccan or egyptian clay drum they make it's like in morocco oh okay right right it's like a north north african ceramic drum with goat skins on it yeah so i would go yeah i would go to these these festivals and sell them at these craft fairs and dead shows and it was it was it was a good first experience of i mean making more of a craft but it was it was my art and it gave me a lot of freedom and i would just um not have to you know check into a real job yeah always, were, you, oh, were you listening to music that inspired that kind of drumming or how did you know to make that um, I was, yeah, I was, you know, it was a moment of Southern California going to drum circles and there was the early introduction to kind of, you know, world music, you know, when, yeah. when all of a sudden Peter Gabriel had his whole new label and there was like Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan and all this oh, sort that's of, so good. Yeah, yeah. this fusion of, or Ali Farkatur and Ray Cooter. So there was like the early moment of, of this kind of like introducing, you know, the West to like quotes, world music, you know, there's right. other people. It's, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. So that was, you know, and I was, I was always just a failed musician. I would, you know, you just go to these big drum circles and you have all these people just wailing on their drums. And, but that was, so anyways, that was, yeah, my early, early nineties. And then I don't know why I'm just giving you the synopsis. Cause I feel like sometimes your podcasts, I like hearing the trajectory. But um, the trajectory is good, yeah. And you've uh, you've got a long story, you know, or you've, have, you've been to I different have a places. Long crazy story, yeah, story. And um, and then I yeah, and then I moved, and then I applied to CCA in Oakland. I, back then it was CCAC, California College of Arts and Crafts. They knocked right. out the crafts, and I went there specifically for crafts. I went there as a ceramics major, so I wasn't really painting yet. I went to undergrad and did ceramics at CCAC. Isn't that where uh, Volkus went? That's where Volkus went and taught. Yeah. Yeah. Volkus and um, maybe Ar- maybe Robert Arneson as well. 
but so anyways, there's like a rich history of ceramics in, in San Francisco in the 60s and 70s. And I was studying with Viola Fry, who was like this big figure of ceramic sculpture. So yeah, that was the late 90s was in, in, in Oak, living in Oakland and um, living in Oakland and working in Oakland. And Did you like it? Was it productive? Going to school there. Yeah, it was great. I mean, we had these amazing facilities and... And I had a great studio for little money in, in, in East Oakland, um, in Fruitvale, which, which is like, which was kind of like the Bushwick of, of Oakland. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, no, it was great. It was an exciting moment of San Francisco, you know, right before the whole dot com boom, you know, from 95 to 2000, it was a great moment of being in San Francisco. It's before yeah. all the real tech money got there, but it was slowly coming in. But it was, you know, it was pre pre email or right as I was getting my yeah first email account. You know? <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> but, it's um, so it's so weird to think of like pre and post email, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, and that was you know that was yeah I had my first big apple computer with you know those big clear things with the greenish filter or the orange oh yeah filter. the fruit flavored ones there was yeah. tangerine blueberry and apple i think or something. <laughs> so yeah that oh. was you know that was um california you know california in the last 20 years i've been in brooklyn i can't believe it it's been you know i got there in 2000 i i i decided you know if i'm gonna do this art thing i might as well immerse myself in the belly of the beasts and i Came to New York in 2000, you know, a year before September 11th. And um, I drove out there, packed up my little pickup truck, you know, and just drove cross country to New York. And you landed in Bushwick. And I'm sure you're sick of talking about Bushwick because there's a lot of lore, the fact that you were an early setter-upper of studio shop in Bushwick and all that stuff. But but you did have the one thing that is interesting. You had the foresight to, to get something there before... You know, I mean, became... there was no real, there was no real brilliant foresight. It was really just out of, <laughs> it was, I mean, I wish I could say it was, but it was really more just out of necessity. It was at the time Williamsburg was kind of like the art neighborhood, but it was already in 2000, it was already getting a little pricey. So for a little bit less money, you could get something in Bushwick back when Bushwick was a real wasteland. Like there really yeah. was nothing, nothing. So yeah, in 2000, um, in 2000, I moved out there in a building with um, a couple other artists. You might, I mean, of, who you might know is Zach Harris. I don't, I don't know, if you know Zach, Zach Harris. Harris. He shows a David Kordansky Gallery or Ezra Johnson. Yeah, Ezra, I know the names, but I don't know them personally. Or Eric Denbrigian. Anyways, we were all yeah, Eric, yeah. One, we were all living in this one building out off the Morgan stop, and um, yeah, it was a great time. I mean, New York was, it was an exciting moment for me. Just getting to New York, you know, I was in my late 20s. There was just this overall excitement and energy. And, you know, it was before Brooklyn really became Brooklyn. Brooklyn yeah. wasn't aware of the Brooklyn phenomena yet. It was Not just, yet. Only Bedford word, Avenue was. <laughs> the, the word hipster, I don't think, even really exists. It was, it was happening before it was, and then it was co-opted and labeled and became like a brand and a thing. Yeah, but I'd say from 2000 when I got there, I don't know prior, so I can't say. But from 2000 to 2005, 2006, I think was really an exciting time musically, artistically, and and for me, I was at, I was um, 
I was working as an art handler, but I was also going to Hunter College. So it was like this full immersion. It was like night school and day school. You know, day school was art handling, which was equal of an education. Oh, yeah. And then, and then being at the 42nd Street Hunter Grad Studios, which was just kind of, it was this wild kind of, and, you know, it was this kind of wild island anarchy. It was this big building, and we were kind of just allowed to just, it was pretty unregulated, and we could pretty much do whatever we wanted there. And it was great, you know, and it was also post 911. I started Hunter College and it was a week after September 11th. It's like, oh, great. I just started grad school and it feels like we just went through like a war. You yeah, still, it was You can still smell like the electrical, you know, you can still smell the. So it was, it was just, a, you know, a good, good moment for me. I was lucky. I was at the right time at the right place. And I only got to, I art handled for two or three years and then I was lucky to be able to get off the trucks and not do that. And, and, you know, I was lucky that I didn't have to hustle. I got picked up while I was in grad school at open studios, you know, like, yeah. So I was, I, I got dealt a good card. I mean, I worked hard. I did work hard. I didn't make sacrifices, but I also, you know, right place, right time. Right. That's probably, well, maybe in your memory a little a little bit long but that's probably a good tenure in the art handling business because there's so much stuff you must have learned doing that that i never i never learned about like packing and all that you know what i mean there's stuff they never teach you in school they don't even broach the subject you know what i mean the problem like, is when i do it myself i never do it as well you know when i'm packing my own <laughs> painting it's like oh jesus i would never do this if i was on the job i'd get fired for this or when i hate right, my own yeah but yeah, when can you imagine, though, if you white-gloved it in your own studio, it would be a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. But, no, it was a great experience, and it was great to see, you know, it was like, it was kind of like you get to New York, and the art world is kind of like this big, impenetrable fortress on top of the hill. You know, you, get, you first get here, and it's, like, really intimidating. You know, you're seeing, like, 25-year-olds getting solo shows, and I was already 28, and I was like, oh, shit, maybe my time's passed. You're seeing all this, you know, it seems kind of like, it seems like you can't get in there. And then all of a sudden you're working as our handler and you're behind the scenes in the gallery in the back. And then you're going to Jasper Johns's house, installing, you know, his Brillo boxes. And then you're going to, you know, Philip Johnson's house. It was, it was a great way to meet and see amazing collections and people. Yeah. And also the lamer side of it, you know, the art advisor who bought a huge Gursky photo who realizes it can't even fit into the, into the, into the apartment and you have to like take it out the wind. I mean, just crazy, you know, God, I hate when that happens with the Gurskis, you know, they're always so big. (laughs) (laughs) They're never tiny. They never fit in the elevator. I think I probably did that once or twice with a painting and I learned a hard way where it's made it too big and it wasn't foldable and it just didn't fit in. Oh yeah. You're like, dude, you gotta like, Put the, make that thing fold or something so yeah that was it was a great it was a good it was just a good experience being a hunter being an art handler just kind of like just wild and free you know riding my bike every day to times square which just seems crazy now before there was bike lanes and all the way from all the way from bushwick to times square to go to the studio every day it was just a certain energy i definitely don't imagine doing now you know <laughs> <laughs> things that we did when we were young yeah young and yeah young. and just uh i'm glad you made it riding your bike yeah. every day to the city that's a not a yeah. it's not a guarantee yeah. and and then and then um in like 2007 i 
I bought this building that's now my studio in my apartment, but for like three years, I ran this, this space called Star Space. It was kind of like an event space I had in Bushwick where we did like concerts and yoga and like fundraiser parties and church parties. And, and, I, and that kind of like, that was like a really fun moment in my life. And then eventually I was like, okay, I can't run this sort of speakeasy yoga studio, movie theater, dance place. You know, it was just, it was nuts trying to juggle this thing. Yeah. But I had, I had great people helping me, um, you know, organizing, curate stuff there. And, um, but that's when Bushwick, there was no yoga studio yet. There was no place to see live music. And so I sort of decided like, okay, um, I'll do this. You know, it was kind of like naive, you know, I could have gotten in a lot of trouble and, you know, for doing it, not really with any permits or anything. Right. But that was, that was a great, that was a great moment of, um, of just, of Bush. It was kind of an exciting moment of Bushwick before it became sort of like a destination like it is now. Yeah. I'm sure you met a lot of great friends from that experience too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a whole community of, of, people in New York, but now you know how it is. Everyone's, you know, upstate or with their kids or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Getting old. <laughs> they were getting old. Yeah. I mean, shit. We, I've been in New York 20 years. All of a sudden it's like, I got there in my late twenties and now I'm in my late forties. You know, it's like, wow. I just, no one wants to hear about the old people like, Oh, well time just, you wouldn't believe how quick it goes, but it really, you know, <laughs> we all do it though. That's why yeah. every older person does it. When I was a kid in Brooklyn, <laughs> You know, it's like that whole story of we oh, didn't yeah. even have the internet, you sons of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it does. I mean, the the arc of the it because you, I guess, when you know we were both were there for pretty much the same amount of time. You know, we both moved in I, late nineties for me, but we were there yeah. about same amount of time. That arc of both what you're doing with your work in that place, and then what changes with the neighborhood is really you know, it's really interesting. It's, it's like a, a big life experience just to go through. I mean, remember blackouts and, you know, like nine eleven, like all that stuff, living through all that stuff. And then the changes in the neighborhood and, you know, for me, and then I had a kid and then like you, the whole neighborhood changes whenever you're a parent, because then you're, you engage in a community in a totally different way. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just, uh, it's a lot, but, you know, but you're still in Brooklyn. So you're still there. Yeah, we bought our place in the early 2000s in East Williamsburg, like right before it becomes Bushwick. So, you know, it was uh -huh. just a little quieter over here. Uh -huh. And, uh -huh. you know, yeah, it's just... Off, off the Graham stop? Yeah, right, you know, around the Cooper Park area, which is... Oh, I love that park. Yeah, my studio used to be right on the park uh, next to Talus, you know, and it yeah. was just, it was like, it's like two minutes from where I live. So now my studio is over by where... Uh, over in uh, where Third Ward used to be, that area. Yeah. I went there. I remember I was there a couple of years. Yeah. Ago. So I mean, it you know, it just it's like um, it's convenient for me, and yeah. and we got that. But yeah, but a lot of people are getting out, you know. And I think maybe this pandemic thing has really you know heightened that desire or need or that itch of being able to be able to escape the city, because when the city is, you know, you pay so much money to be here, and you're it's like you know, your studio, it costs so much money and it's like stressful and it's, it's great. But the, when the great sides leave, like being able to go see live music and going to eat like great food or, or whatever, just walking around the city when that kind of isn't there anymore and you're just here, I think a lot of people are like, wait, why don't we just get out of here and go get some land and see nature and, you know, escape it. 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of massive exodus there is going to be from New York. If there really is going to be, are we really, or what are we headed for? Like, what's it going to be like in the next year? Yeah. You know, hopefully we don't go, we don't go back to like taxi driver days of New York city, you know, like it's hard to tell of like how bad could the economy get? How bad is, yeah, we'll see. But I think in general, yeah, there's, if you can't, if you can't, take advantage of all the, the good social cultural things of New York city. What's the point of being there? Like it's, it's like a social cultural hub and that's where you go to, you know, um, integrate yourself, you know, socially and culturally. And how can you, when you can't see anyone? So it's like, why be there? Yeah. And it becomes even more kind of, it, it taunts you because it's, it's the, the locale that you're used to being able to go out and do studio visits and hang out with people and socialize and that side of things, go see a museum, you know, collection, like being close to MoMA or the Met or whatever, but you, it, it's right there, but you can't go do it. That's almost more, it's almost, it would probably be better to be out on a farm in Pennsylvania, you know, because <laughs> then it's like, well, I'm not even thinking about it. Maybe. I mean, who knows? Um, I, I can only be, I, I I try to be optimistic and hope that something good will come of this. You know, I think oh, eventually, too. eventually an exciting new thing will happen in New York. I know like post nine one one, there was definitely like all of a sudden like this, this kind of creative energy that was happening. And I think that eventually people are going to, you know, adapt and evolve. They have to, to this new situation. I think we don't quite know what it is yet. I think we're in, I think we're in like chapter two of COVID and there's like eight more chapters. I think. Yeah that's the scary thing is we haven't even, we don't even, we haven't seen the end of this yet, but I think people will take good things from this and try to adapt accordingly, you know, definitely. Everyone, I think everyone needed to slow the fuck down a little bit, you know, because I think it was sure. kind of like everything was going too rampantly, just exponentially growing too fast, too much, too, too many art fairs, too many mega galleries, too much money, too much consumption, too much travel, too much all of it, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think it's the, you know, and on a larger scale, it's the Earth's way of saying to humans, like, chill out. You're just yeah. too, you don't yeah. need to fly every every day. You don't need to, yeah. you know, it's just back like to, calm back down. Back to your room and reflect on who you are and what you want. And what <laughs> We're grounded. Like, Yeah. It's like, I mean, for us, it's not that radical of a change because we're naturally sort of quarantined as artists. But I think for some people, it's really challenging. All of a sudden, oh, yeah. you're, just faced, you're just faced with your identity and yourself and your, and your um, goals or dreams. And what are they? And what are you doing? And what, what's important to you? And who's important to you? I think we all had to kind of like check in a little bit, you know? Which I'm sure for some people is really, I mean, like you said, that's kind of what artists do. Like when you get to the studio and you're looking at the blank canvas or, you know, the empty studio floor, that's the real thing. That's, that's one of the toughest parts about it is like, okay, what am I doing? Why? What? Why? How? Like, you know, yeah. the hardest questions of an artist, not like, you know, how to make this color red. It's, it's kind of like, why am I doing this? What should I do? And all that. And yeah. I think... For a lot of people whose existence is like defined by social interactions and they're out there and they're not thinking about it because they're distracted about just, you know, being human, all of a sudden they're in an artist studio and like four white walls. And it's, you know, it's not the easiest place. See, it's not so easy, people, doing this. <laughs> no <laughs> one wants to so no one wants to hear our sob story, but the yeah. plight of an artist. 
Sure yeah. they do. That's why they're listening. <laughs> there are other artists who are like, yeah, man, <laughs> it ain't easy. But yeah, it, it wasn't as easy as I thought working during, you know, during the Corona thing. I thought it'd be like, oh, I got this. This is what I do anyways. But it was still unsettling even for me. I was, I, I didn't have, it wasn't as easy as I thought it would be for me to focus, you know, just like having just this looming uncertainty. And then, and then you just can't think of a bigger nightmare. It's like, you're going to have a pandemic. It's going to be run by a reality TV show wannabe dictator, and it's and then and we're going to be on the brink of a civil war. It's like you, it's like you can't make this shit up. It's like it's just like your brain trying to just like navigate through all this bullshit and this uncertainty, and it like literally feels like we're on the verge of like a dictatorship. And then there's a pandemic, and and then Trump's saying build the wall, build the wall, and the irony of it is. Like every other country's built a wall against us. Like we literally, we literally cannot go to another country right now. Like I was lucky, I have a French passport so I could go to France for my show. But yeah. literally every country says, fuck you, you cannot come to us anymore. Yeah. Like, we didn't have, reason. Spend, didn't have to spend any money to get walled out. We got walled out because of his incompetence. It's just, it's just infuriating. It's fucking nuts. I was it in is. France. And, I was in France and Spain for my show and people were back to more or less, it was kind of just back to norm normalcy, you know, it's like, cause they were serious about their quarantine. You know, it was like, yeah, you know, you have to put your individual me, me, me aside and you actually stay in your apartment for three months. And, and the Frenchies did and the Spaniards did, you know, at first they got hit hard like New York, but they really quarantined. Like New York did pretty well, but Europe was even stricter. There was like, literally you can only go out if you're exercising or to go get groceries or to walk your dog and you yeah. had to show proof of it. And it was like people, in America, people are like, you can't tell me what to do, you know, and it's like, here we are now, five months later, and it's just a complete shit show. Exactly. Yeah, it's just like people here don't care about other people. It's really frustrating. Yeah. You know, yeah. I spend a lot of time in Japan because my family, you know, extended family, yeah. Japanese, and there's such that idea of, of people just caring about others more than themselves is such a refreshing oh, yeah. thing compared especially to the... Japan. Especially yeah. in Japan. It's like honor of, yeah. I love Japan. It's love the that. best. And, and, you know, if we'll see what happens in November, but I might be relocating. <laughs> it's kind I, of, yeah. uh, I mean, yeah. If Trump wins again, it's kind of, it is, it's kind of like the, the death of this country. If he wins again, it's like, okay, full on tyranny is in place now. Like, like it or not. Like, yeah. I know. I mean, people say, oh, Jules, you're so alarmist. You don't, you're being crazy. I'm like, no, I, you know, I'm not optimistic. If he wins again, it's like, who knows? I mean, of course, the polls say he won't. He won't. Who the hell? Who the hell knows? Who knows what Russia is capable of? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Well, I just wouldn't the, be so sure. I wouldn't be so sure that, of course, Biden's going to win. I, I never, never know. Yeah. I mean, just if if you look at the polls, if you're into polls predicting, just the amount of people who still support that guy makes you want to question being in the house. You know what I mean? It's like people yeah. living downstairs who are, you know. Like how at this point, but always I, that's, be like, there will always be like that 35% of super diehards. Like he could literally kill someone on Park Ave and they will still be there. Trump, Trump, Trump. Like those are the, those are the full blown cuckoos that are kind of running this country to shit. You know? Yeah. It's like by the time Trump's over, it's like we will have lost all credibility. Like uh, it's just like the death of an empire within four years. It's crazy. Isn't the great? Isn't the greatest irony of it is this is a a guy? I used to think with uh, George Bush, you know, 
the second <laughs> that the irony of him is he's out there and mending fences on the on the farm or whatever but this is a guy who went to yale who was you know silver spoon and you know and i used to think the irony that he's trying to relate to these you know people out in the country but trump is a guy who has like a golden toilet manhattan giant condo building you know and he's out there trying to relate these people who support him yeah. it just doesn't make sense to me it's it's so it, it, it's it comes, it comes down to just ignorance and education you know i think these people are just ignorant not knowing that he has he has he could give a, he could give a shit about them he's the, they're the last people he just knows how easily he can manipulate them but he could he doesn't care about the you know the low lower middle class average joe american he could give a shit yeah but and, i think that's partially our country's um we're all on the hook for that that lack of education and that lack of resources for everyone you know people don't get that way because we're building amazing schools and putting all our resources into you know the country at large we're, we're just kind of like it, it I, no, I putting into military and police and yeah we're exactly. really running police state and and we realized, you know, we thought with Obama, like, oh, we're past racism, blah, blah, blah. We have a black president. It's like, oh, no, bullshit. Like, we're deeply still rooted in racism. Like, it's still deeply rooted in America. It's like, yeah, you can't forget, like, this country was basically, like, built off the Holocaust of Native Americans and then built off of slave labor. So it's like our roots in this country are just instantly really complicated. It's like it's... It's watered in blood, you know? It's like our roots are, so here it is, you know, 400 years later and we're still suffering, you know, the consequences of, of the early days of our country and how, and how it was founded. It's so, it's, yeah, it's, it's really complicated. Like, there's racism all over the world, but it's, in America, it's on another level and it's still really there, you realize. And now, and now Trump's made it acceptable to, to you know, like all these kids that grew up with Trump as a president, now it's okay to like, you know, you know, be racist or be homophobic. Right. It's insane. You can be president if yeah, you, you can be act president. like that. <laughs> it, so, it's crazy. Yeah, strange, strange times. Well, I mean, we can be hopeful. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's tricky. It's it's a tricky thing. And like how do you feel about I don't wanna know if I wanna open up this can of worms. <laughs> How do you feel about the art world and that kind of like, don't you feel like there's a little bit of a separation between the have and the have nots just even within the art world right now to where it's, you know, like the, the big people are going to survive and all the little people are going to like kind of waste it. Remember when like, like five or six years ago, or actually the last economic kind of downturn when they said, Oh, like the little galleries are going to go away. Like the little to mid tier galleries are just going to go away and it's only going to be the, the mega galleries who can survive it that didn't really happen completely it did a bit but but now it seems like this really might do it to a lot of people you know i mean i think it's i think it's doing it even it's even doing it for like businesses you know look at like how amazon just like their profits just skyrocketed during covid like because no one was buying from anyone else right i, th I think covid naturally like is is kind of like weeding out the little guys and it's just becoming more and more global mega mega dominance. It's just the, the direction the world's going in with galleries and with stores. It's the WalMarts, the WalMarts of stores, or the Amazons of stores, and then the galleries are the mega the mega galleries. And yeah, there's yeah. less and less that in between. Even what's what's funny is now how like 
galleries like, yeah, Barbara Gladstone or Metro Pictures are considered like the mid-tier galleries. When, when we were around in the early yeah. 2000s, that was, that was the mega gallery. And now, yeah. there's the, now there's the mega, mega gallery that has like five, ten galleries all over the world and these humongous spaces. And then these artists have to fill these like airplane size hangers for art. And it's just, it's problematic just because it becomes like, you have to feed these huge monsters and like, and then you have to become a factory to feed these, these mega galleries. And then the right. little galleries, I mean, I think no matter what little galleries will always find a way to exist. It might be yeah. an apartment for the next two years. There's going to be lots of weird parking lot, you know, apartment shows like people yeah. will find interesting creative ways to circumnavigate like the mega mega but yeah, I think a lot of people are going to get eclipsed or, or, you know, closed out from this. It's just, it's just brutal. And we haven't even felt the full reper repercussions of it yet. Right. Know? I, I know that's the scary part, isn't it? But you're, I mean, I hear of, you know, I hear of these big galleries that are selling a, a lot less than they usually are, you know, like I don't. Good news, good news, though. They're getting government bailout loans, the big ones. Oh, yeah, so. like huge amounts, like ridiculous amounts. Can you, can you imagine? Like the whole, the whole thing is so infuriating. Yeah, it's, you know, yeah. Remember when uh, that, that news story came out that, um, was it Danny Meyer, the Shake Shack guy was like, hey, I got like a loan. He's like, I don't need the loan. Like these small oh, no, restaurants no. need it. And it's just like, man that well kudos to that guy for for bringing that up but it just shows you like where the where the sort of you know the the importance of what they feel like needs to survive lies within and anyways well, that's, what, that's what's scary about moments like this it's like yeah the the bigger guys get even bigger and then and then everyone else gets kind of like left aside like yeah there's lots of people doing big power money making moves right now at, at the mercy of other people oh, no it's yeah it's a dark situation I don't so how's the painting in light of all that <laughs> i don't mean to sound so doom and gloom um painting is going well i just you know i just had a show in europe that just is still up and um it's up till september and i'm just kind of getting my engine started again you know i just kind of the work shipped off like a month ago and i'm just slowly kind of getting my I always take a little bit of a break after I ship off the work. Yeah. I just, it's kind of like becomes so immersive towards the very end. I'm happy to kind of step back and focus on other stuff in my life for a second, but I'm excited to start. I know I just have a whole new body of work I want to work on and I'm just kind of starting, starting to work. I'm slowly kind of maybe trying to get a little bit less. I'm, I, I want to try to make this new body of work a little bit going in a, more slightly more abstract way giving even less and less figurative elements trying to but still yeah. having it somehow rooted in some kind of figurative narrative but with delineating even more information you know, I don't know yeah. thinking more about painting a painting versus painting a picture you know like you're painting like a picture a story versus like i wanted to somehow become more about paint but i still need some kind of baseline story or some idea i can't just be smudging around like colors and shapes i still need some kind of something to ground it conceptually but but going a little bit more abstract i'm having a lot of fun using oil sticks 
nice. which I've always dabbled with a little bit, but now lately I've really kind of gone in with like oil sticks. I'm really, I like, I love, I'm loving the directness of it. Just the drawing kind of quality of it. I like the crudeness yeah. of it, a little bit of lack of control. I don't know. Try, you know, I'm always wanting the work to change or evolve and it only changes and evolves so quickly. It doesn't really, you know, I always, I'm always hoping for this big leap of progression, but it's kind of these slow little, baby steps i have the same same thing where it's yeah. just micro changes you know yeah. what i mean that that don't necessarily prevent them or present themselves to people probably as much as they do to yourself in the yeah yeah and Man, I think oil that, oil stick is such a uh, a beautiful i mean it makes me want to work in oils i i just work in water-based stuff but um i show when i teach drawing i show that video of uh george condo making a drawing with the oil stick. It's one of the most beautiful yeah. <laughs> things ever, yeah. man. It's yeah. just like the way he uses that thing. It's, it's great. Yeah. I, 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 it's, I think it's a good way of just introducing some kind of new material to sort of new challenges and new directions a little bit. Yeah. Do you work where you are now too, or do you only work? Yeah, in the I, have, city? I have like a little two car garage here where I have a little studio. Nice. So the paintings are a little bit smaller here and, um, I work smaller scale work and then I have the Bushwick studio where it's larger paintings. Yeah. But I'm kind of here for the summer just to kind of, get, you know, be out of the city and just to work and immerse myself in the studio again. I'm just, like I said, I'm just getting started working again. So it's just like the beginning and I'm usually starting like multiple paintings at once. I kind of start like 10 paintings at once and I'm sort of just rotating from different ones, bouncing around the studio. Yeah. And then, that's, um, that's and then eventually nice I'm starting more paintings and more painting. I keep going and I keep starting more paintings. And then the problem is all of a sudden I have like 30 paintings and none of them are finished. And I'm just <laughs> sort of, it's hard going that last 10, 15%, you know, in a painting, I can get it to like 80%. And then I'm like, okay, I'm bored now. I'm going to go to something else. And then it's like, no, that still needs another, like, you're not fully finished, you know, right. sometimes. You know, for a while, I, you know, I've become friends with Josh Smith and, you know, you know how he works and his work is like so immediate and direct and, yeah. you know, and he would come to my studio. He's like, you're done, you're done, you know, and it's like, and I would listen to him because I really love and admire how he works, but it really wouldn't work for me, you know, like the way he works worked for him. But for a while, I was sort of trying to, you know, like, yeah, I don't need to overwork this, you know, a la Josh Smith, but it's like. For me, it works for Josh, and I tried it for me, and I had a couple of paintings that I let out, and I'm like, "Can you send that back? That thing is not, <laughs> it's not done. <laughs> it's not cooked. Like, I, you just over the years, you have to accept how you work. Like Josh, it works for him, and I thought, like, I, I got this, I can do that too. And it's like, no, that doesn't, it doesn't. You know, you just you over the years, you learn to finally accept. You know, we're always struggling as artists. You know, insecurities, doubts, the blah blah blah, the questioning, the questioning. Over the and after a while, you just kind of like okay, you just surrender to like become who you are, you know, like yeah, do like quit, you know. Life is hard enough as it is, like right. whatever it is that's happening out there in the bigger sphere, like. And yes, art can be a struggle. And it's okay to be a struggle, but you don't have to make it a battle every day either. You know, it's like it's like <laughs> soften the road here a little bit, you know. So <laughs> totally. as as I get older, I just accept like okay, well, hey, you want to do another painting of a scene in nature and that's what you're compelled to do well fuck it do it like don't like why well, you can't do this you've already done you know I'm like well some artists have done a whole career making the same painting like big deal i can make my like nut you know 10th 
painting that looks a little bit like, you know, nine other ones. It's like, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. There's a real, I don't know when it happened, but there's a real liberating feeling of when you get to a certain age where you're like, you know what? I don't, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. care. Like, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm interested in. And then you realize if you're trying to tweak that really hard, you're just putting on, you know, it's you're affect. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not listening to what you're really compelled by. And, yeah. and there's always yeah. this adage like in school or like growing up as an artist, it's like you really have to try to find the thing that really drives you because if you're faking it, other people will know it. Yeah. You know, like you're not guaranteed anyone's going to like anything anyway. You might as well do what you're passionate about, what you really believe yeah. in, you know? Yeah. And that's in, in when I was in, yeah, when, in art school, that was like, sometimes if someone like, whether the work was good or sometimes the work isn't necessarily good, but if you see so much conviction and passionate in the work that someone's doing, you're like, Hey, you know what? You get a pass. Cause I see that you're so full on to something that like, whether it's, quotes good or not is questionable but just the conviction in the work sometimes that you see someone have is like you know what you get an a just for that you know yeah that you're i that, totally agree yeah yeah that you got your your weird idea that you're making you know these sculptures with q-tips and wax and whatever it is and it's like you're a believer in whatever it is more power to you you know i've I'm gotten just, i've gotten so soft on that that now even if they are faking it or if they are like not fully into it and I'll just give them a pass with like, well, you know, that must be really hard to spend all that time making that show on work that you don't really truly believe yeah. in. Like there's yeah. something to say about that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you really stuck with that whole half-assed approach to that work. <laughs> I have to say a shout out to all the teachers because it is hard work and I'm not naturally, I don't think a good teacher. I mean, I've never actually taught, but I'm in, I'm, it's a lot of work teaching. I mean, I've done workshops where I go to schools and do a lecture and do crits, but like, I have to say, like, I don't think I'm cut to teach, you know, like, I think it's really difficult and demanding. Like I can do a crit with a student and come in there, someone I've never seen and do a 30 minute crit and give them what I got. And I think I, I can be helpful in that sense, but I can't come back two weeks later and give them more stuff. You know, that's the thing with the challenges that teachers, <laughs> right. Okay. Back here three weeks later, you kind of listened to what I said, but not really. And you've only made this one drawing in the last three weeks. And now I got to have another 40 minute one-on-one -on -one about what's already sort of maybe deficient. And then now I have to try to give you, it's just, it's challenging. Like I can, totally. I can give someone something for 40 minutes in one session and then it's like, okay, let's check back in in a year. You know, like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to keep, you know, an, an inspiring um, dialogue throughout the semester, you know, with some. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is a, it's, it's a different thing. And I think that's why it's so great as an art student that you have your faculty and you have visiting artists because visiting artists will come in and just give you their framework, their yeah. frame of mind and like their angle. Yeah. Whereas as a professor that's there all the time, you really have to get into all their brains and like yeah. figure out what they're really trying to do and okay. over time get them closer to that thing that they're really wanting to, to do with the but, work. But that's what's interesting about the visiting artist thing is they, they kind of just get dropped in for a commando mission, go in real quick, assess the thing and come out. You know, oh, I joke. I joke that they set the t they just set the town on fire. They just come yeah, in yeah. and blow the place up, and they yeah, leave because like, they don't know anything about the work, the person, anything. But it's they don't know the context, the history, the the references, and they're just like, I know nothing about it, but this is what I see. And sometimes they have to hear that. Sometimes there's too much like, 
well, I'm doing this and that. And you got to remember, like, when someone walks into that gallery or sees your work online or however, there is no subtext. It's just yeah. that image. I don't, I don't care what all the, the, the sort of semantics behind it are or what the, the narrative is or the, the conceptual references. It's like none of that is there. It just has to hang on its own naked. And, like, there's no one there to fluff it up. And you have to right. You have to be able to just, it has to just hold on its own. Like that narrative and that concept sounds great, but no one's hearing that when they're looking at it. So like, how's it's this valuable? It's valuable. Visually both, both value. and conceptually. Like basically if it's like, if you're visually seduced and, in, and then if you're conceptually challenged, then, oh, you've done it. Like check, you know, like yeah. for me, there has to be some, some kind of idea that I'm holding on to. And then of course I want to still be like, visually compelled or seduced is that wrong to say seduction yes i want to be seduced by art <laughs> yeah yeah you know what it makes me think of is um the the difference between as a player the soccer coach and then the fan because the coach is like working over time to make you a better player to give you field awareness to understand the game the beauty of the the movement where you need to be how you need to train the fan comes in is is like listen just score or you suck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just the, the person coming into the gallery is just, they don't care about where you went to school, all that. They just want to come in yeah. and feel compelled by that yeah. image, yeah. you know? And uh, there's something to be said for, I mean, that's how most people experience the game. They come in and they just see if you win the game or not, if you score, yeah. if you make something beautiful happen. Whereas, you know, the coaches have to be there the whole time and they're working over time to get you to that are place. You, to are you not feeling appreciated as a soccer coach, Brian? <laughs> i'm starting a new podcast on that one <laughs> coach <Light>. this grown old soccer dads <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but you know i as a coach it's it no, i yeah. feel like there's a lot of similarities between teaching and coaching you know it's really yeah, yeah. very yeah. similar but yeah. uh but yeah there's there's you know ups and downs to it and it ain't easy but it's rewarding whenever you have someone who goes on and does great things and they say you know Hey, you know, that thing you said was really inspired or, you know, helped me out. That feels really yeah. good. You know, yeah. I feel like that is, is thinking about, I'm not at all interested in legacy or like what happens to my work after I'm gone, you know, whatever. Like I, it is what it is, you know what I mean? But if, if you can make a difference in someone's life like that, or, or sort of inspire someone, I feel like that is a legacy that could be really, you know, yeah. inspiring. So I did a talk at a school and someone asked me in the Q and A like, well, what about like your legacy? What do you think about your legacy? I said, legacy. I'm like, I didn't know if there's going to be a world in 60 years from now. Like, what am I worried about my legacy? Like, right. You know, I don't know. Will there be, you know, like, I, I don't know. It's like, but yeah. Well, the, the people with a true legacy might be the people who've like invented a solar panel or turbines or some way to like, you know, yeah. fix the the global crisis of the climate change, you know, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. More so than that one painting. Not that I'm not devaluing art. I'm just saying, no. you know, like you said, we, we got to worry about, you know, the I mean, world like, surviving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, last thing I wanted to, to talk with you about that we didn't talk too much about is like, these days, what's your relationship to music? Do you listen to a lot in the studio? Is it um, cause I know um, you've been into music. Yeah. I, I, I knew, I knew that question was going to come from you and I was like, Oh shit, what cool answer do I have? Or what, you know, Apex twin to say Apex twin. <laughs> then you like street cred forever. There we go. <laughs> Fugazi Wait, or Apex twin or whatever. <laughs> yeah. 
or Brian Eno or something. Is that what there that you called? go? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's a whole wide range of it's a whole it's all over the place. I can't, I'm not even going to go into specifics. Really, you can say Justin it, Bieber. No one's going to judge you <laughs> if you say Justin Bieber. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's all over the place. It's all yeah. over. It's global, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little Serge Gainsbourg, maybe, in the studio. Yeah, I have my, I have my, I have to tap into my Frenchy moments, sure. But um, you know, with Spotify and other people's playlists, and I just get a there's there's almost too much music. It gets overwhelming, you know. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> There's like almost too much to choose from, but but I make my little playlists on Spotify and then I discover some new thing on, you know. But yeah, I don't even have my CDs anymore. I don't even know what happened to them, but that, all those days are long gone. It's all just like on Spotify. Yeah, mine are in a giant box in a storage unit somewhere. But, you know, I find to continue our theme of, of growing old, I find that there's a real comfort <laughs> to go back to certain things. You know what I mean? And like the relationship I had with them. I remember in grad school listening to a lot of Stereo Lab and Mouse on Mars. And yeah. recently I've been going back to some of that stuff and, and yeah. it, there's a nostalgia there that's kind of nice that I'm enjoying. No, it's funny how you listen to certain music and it takes you right back to that moment. All of a sudden yeah. you're back in high school listening to Led Zeppelin. And it's like, okay, like how much more can I listen to like Led Zeppelin or Neil Young or Bob Dylan? As much as I love them, it's like, I don't really pop, I don't really break them out much anymore, but once in a while I'm like, Oh, it still sounds amazing. You know, but it's like, I, you know, 30 years of working in the studio, listening to music. It's like, I'm just kind of excited to discover new music through Spotify, you know? Yeah, totally. And yeah. And Spotify makes it easier too to find um, new music. That's very old too, you know? Yeah. 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 Like there's like a lot of like African music that I've always loved high life and Nigerian, you know. Um, yeah, I'm getting music, a, I love I love a lot of that stuff and I don't know all the, the names or the bands, but I, you know, I'll just type in like Fela Kuti on Spotify and then I'm just bombarded with all this different stuff that I, that I really like. And yeah, there's so great. much, you know, a lot of stuff from the seventies and eighties that you've never heard of. And then, yeah, I go through a wide range but i don't really know what's the newest 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 music i'm a little bit out out of it as far as the newest stuff that's happening right now me too you can't just what is yeah what is what is the newest i don't even know what is the newest stuff happening. i don't know i i think i stopped at trap music i think that was the end of it yeah. for me yeah. i don't know what's after that <laughs> yeah i think it's just tiktok sounds or you know songs for tiktok or something i don't know yeah. my my I, i've i've graduated out i guess <laughs> There's plenty yeah. out there. I haven't ventured into the land of TikTok. Isn't that for high school kids? I think so. I, I don't really <laughs> do it, but I don't fully understand it. It's videos and people lip sync. This is where I really sound old. What is it, right? It's just they're like synchronized dances to like songs okay. that are just out there. But I, I it's funny because I asked my son about it and he was like, Oh, I don't do TikTok. He's like, yeah. oh, oops, I got the demographic wrong. Sorry, I didn't realize what age group <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, that's how out of it I am. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I'm seeing like younger artists doing, you know, dancing in front of their paintings and dancing in the studio and stuff and going viral. It's pretty interesting to combine <laughs> art and dance yeah. or art and music. It's a different world out there. Listen, we all 
to do is in our old man caves and make our art and just, you know, just enjoy yeah. what we're doing in the studio. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I'm also like, I'm, that's when I know I'm getting old. And I like my podcasts now, you know, like listening to my different weird history podcasts or Mark Marin or, or Sam Harris. Or, yeah, it's great, right? There's I so love, much too. There's so much, you know, I have years of listening to too much loud music in the studio. I'm a little deaf now. Now it's time to like educate and enlighten myself with more podcasts. Yeah. Like sound and vision. What do you think? Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, you wrapped the bow on that really well. So, so you got, um, it's a show up now in Paris. I have, I have the show up now in Paris at Ropac gallery until September 5th. And then um, I'm working for towards a show that opens at the Malaga Museum in 2021. But that's that's my next big thing. It's a museum show in Malaga, Spain. I oh, God, I hope you can go there. I've always wanted to go to Malaga. I was just there. I, I went to, to do a site visit when I was in Paris. I went and flew to, to, to Spain and checked it out. It was great. It was nice to be outside of America. I tell you, it really miss, makes me miss Europe a little bit. Yeah, you know, we went to Barcelona over Thanksgiving break. Oh, and did? that was right before, because we didn't know it yet, but that was right before it kind of started because like the early cases were in like December, yeah. January, but they feel like it might have been, that other strain might have been in Europe around that time. And uh, But that was the first time I was in Barcelona, Picasso Museum, and it was just amazing. And we, we were hoping to go back this Thanksgiving to Spain, but I don't know. We'll see what happens. That might be on hold for a bit. I know, unfortunately. But man, I could live that life of the espressos in the morning, walking around in a beautiful city. It's just really nice. Yeah. yeah. Great food. Good yeah, stuff. Well, um, well, Brian. Great to talk. I'm glad we finally did it. We did it. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast by going to soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can help support the podcast by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and a review for the podcast. It really helps. You can find more images on Instagram at Sound and Vision Podcast. Many thanks to Golden Artist Colors for their sponsorship of the podcast. Many thanks to Jules and to Evan Marion for the music. Michael Lovett for the intro. Check out his new album, Nazca Lines. Pure Luxury is out now. And most of all, thanks to you for listening.